want to thank everybody for coming out today. Uh, Brother Israel asked me last Sunday if I would speak for him this morning. I always count it a privilege to bring what the Lord has shown me in Scripture. Um, be in prayer for them, not only for safe travels, but they're turning over their baby girl, who's not such a baby anymore, to Uncle Sam, and that's always a trial, especially for a mama, so uh, keep them in your prayers today. And to kind of second what Cole said, uh, tonight we're going to be in Season 2, Chapter 3 of our Chosen series, uh, so I encourage you all to come back out and watch that with us. I've never seen a better portrayal of the life of Christ than what we're seeing in this Chosen series. Uh, I believe you'll have a blessing, even though we're on season two right now, if this is your first time coming back, I know that you will get something out of it, some encouragement, and you'll probably want to go back and catch up, because it is a fantastic um, series. Into my message today, there was a, a young man, he was the son of a low-level civil servant, he grew up in a... He was struggling to be an artist, but he couldn't get into art school. He failed grand admission. Ended up mooching off his mother for a couple of years and started getting by painting city scenes uh, to make ends meet. Well, a uh, political party found him and found out that he had a, the gift of gab. He was a good speaker and they started cultivating him well, he grew to be an influential leader known for his fiery, inspiring speeches. And ultimately, he led to the reshaping of Europe. He plunged the whole world into war. And he caused a political party to commit such atrocities that a new word would have to be invented for it. This word, of course, was the Holocaust, and that was Adolf Hitler. Today I see that trend continuing. You see, we've got to be very careful when we look at our world leaders or we look at ourselves and we don't mistake charisma for character. Hitler had a lot of charisma, but he had very low character. And I'm seeing that today in political leaders on both sides of the fence. They have a lot of charisma, the popular ones, are very charismatic, but many of them have very low character. And I find that our, our population is in, increasingly become more influenced by popular and charismatic figures. Our whole electoral process is dissolved into a popularity contest rather than on the wisdom and the stance of the candidates. Actors, screenwriters, and athletes use their popularity and their charisma to promote their political agenda that defies God. The greater population seems to believe that based on something, how something is said and who says it is more important than what they're saying. And you can see this, you can just Google it, uh, you'll find that a liberal politician and a 
conservative politician will say the same thing, but certain people will ridicule one for saying it and praise the other one. And there's countless of examples of that throughout history. But suddenly we understand if you don't look at the truth of what someone is saying and you're just believing it because of who it is and how charismatic they are, how something like the Holocaust could happen. I used to have a hard time struggling with this. How could somebody follow a man like Hitler? How could someone follow someone like the Antichrist? And I think the stage is being set in the world today to make way for the Antichrist. He's going to be a very charismatic leader. And I think we're going to have to have a little discernment to differentiate between popularity and integrity or charisma and character. This is true even in the church. I've, uh, I've heard testimonies from people that talk about a fired up preacher. They said he got up and he walked up and down the front pew, up on top of the pew. I said, well, what was his scripture on? Well, I, I don't remember. Well, he, he stood up on the table that they have, just walked off the stage onto the table, and he was a hollering, and he was sweating, and he was red-faced, and he was energetic. What, what was his message? What did he say? Well, I don't remember. I heard that exact testimony given to me by a, a pastor friend of mine when he was talking with a, a visitor in his church. I think it's, we've got to be very careful even in our church leaders that we search them out with scripture, that we find out that they're giving us truth and not just a powerful presentation. Unfortunately, with the social media phenomenon, we see this trend trickle a little bit into our personal lives. Um, in his book, The Antidotes of the Painting in England, a fellow by the name of Walpole included the account of Oliver Cromwell. I'd like to read that to you. Now, this was a time in England when it was very popular when you painted the monarchy to show them in the best possible light, even fanciful. But Cromwell told the artist, he said, I desire you would pour all your skill to paint my picture truly like me and not flatter me at all. But remark all these roughnesses, pimples, warts, and everything as you see them, as you see me. Otherwise, I will never pay a farthing, farthing for it. And that, of course, led to the phrase, paint me warts and all, which means to see the truth, not the narrative. But now when I see a lot of photographs and a lot of people's lives on social media, they're putting their best life forward. I see pictures that have been so doctored and filtered that sometimes I don't even recognize the people in them. And sometimes when we're out there walking around in our real lives, we're trying to put forth a false front and not show our true character, but show something that people would want to see. We're trying to seek popularity. We have a great example of the folly of charisma over character in the book of 1 Samuel. But before we get into that and open the scripture, let's pray. Merciful Heavenly Father, I thank you for this chance to come and share your work. 
Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me, that you would give me the power and the strength to share what you have given me. Lord, I ask that you would take all the glory from this and leave nothing behind for me, that everybody would see your words and your truths in this. Lord, I ask that you would just watch over this service and get glory from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we see this example in what is the tragedy of the life of Saul. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 9. This is for the first time we're introduced to Samuel. While you're turning there, I will kind of set the stage. Up to this point, the nation of Israel had been ruled by judges. Basically what it was was the tribal elders, the leaders of the family, would make decisions for their tribes and the judge would rule on the decisions that they had made if something came up. But the power was in the individual tribes and through God's anointed speaker, the judge. And uh, Samuel's sons were next in line to become judges. Well, Samuel's sons were known to take bribes. They were corrupt leaders. So instead of trying to fix this and, and replace those judges, the nations of Israel came to Samuel and said, we want a king like everybody else has got. Well, Samuel took their petition to the Lord, and he told them, he kind of gave them some warnings over what was going to happen. He said, I don't think you really want this because the, uh, if you have a king, he's going to require you to send your men to him because he's going to want a national standing army. He's going to tax you to pay for the the national stuff. He's going to take your livestock, a portion of your livestock. If you put it in today's climate and atmosphere in America, it would be like yielding states' rights to the federal government. That was basically what was going on here. They were establishing a national king. So they say, we don't care. We still want a king. So Samuel takes their petition to God. God says, all right, I'm going to give them what they think they want. So we find in chapter 9, we find Saul's first appearance. Now the Lord had told Samuel that he would bring him the king that the people wanted. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Betcherath, the son of Apana, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. Now we see right here, this is Saul's father. He's listed as a prominent man in the tribe of Israel and a mighty man of power. So right off the bat, we see that Saul came from good stock according to the world standards. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man, and goodly, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders upward, he was a head higher than any of the people. Now, he was of the right stock. He was a choice and goodly man or handsome. As a matter of fact, he was more handsome than anybody in the kingdom. I mean, this was a good-looking guy. On top of that, he stood a head taller than everybody else. So, I mean, coming from 
a worldly standard. This guy's from the right stock. He's physically impressive. You know, this is the guy. This is the guy we want to stand up. He's a kingly dude. So God gives them what they want. Then through a series of circumstances involving some missing livestock, God brings Saul before Samuel. And he tells Samuel that this is the guy. Samuel anoints him in private and then takes him out in public and he's affirmed before the people through a casting of lots. And the people were enamored with him. I mean, this is, uh, this is like a movie star stuff. And then, right after he's made king, he has a resounding victory over the Amorites and it appears that they made the right choice. They got just what they needed. They got just what they wanted. The Lord had blessed them with the perfect king. Unfortunately, over in chapter 13, Saul's personal and spiritual flaws begin to show up. If you'll turn over there, turn a couple of pages over to chapter 13. Now, what had gone on here was Paul starts calling together his army to fight the Philistines. And while he was gathering up his army, his son Jonathan had led a successful strike against the Philistines. So here comes the Philistine army. And the Hebrews, uh, let's see, let's start in verse 5. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in a multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward toward Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets, and in rocks, and in high places, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gil Gilgal, and all the people followed him were trembling. And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed, but Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Paul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Now, right here, you start seeing a little bit of what the problem was with Saul. Saul was putting his popularity and what the people thought about him ahead of what God thought about him. Um, the people were starting to leave. They were scared. He had some of his army going AWOL. He had some of them hiding. The ones that were actually there with him were trembling in fear. And on top of all that, the priest was supposed to come and make the sacrifice to get to impeach the Lord to come onto their side, to get his help involved. And he was supposed to be there on the seventh day. Well, the morning of the seventh day, the priest ain't there. So Saul gets impatient and he makes a bad decision. He usurps the power of the priest and he does the sacrifice himself. And of course, 
as soon as he does so, Samuel shows up. Look in verse 10. And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? Now this is very important right here because Samuel had said he was going to arrive the seventh day. Well, he didn't arrive early enough in the day for Saul. So Saul went ahead, got carried away, and he saw the people fleeing and he panicked. So then Samuel shows up when he said he was going to, not on Saul's timetable, but on God's timetable. And he asked him, what has he done? Now right here, if we were talking about David... David would have said, I have sinned against the Lord. This is what I have done. I confess I need to seek forgiveness. That was one of the things that made David a man after God's own heart. David always confessed his sin. He didn't always see it, but when he was confronted with it, like when Nathan confronted him over Bathsheba, he confessed and he went before the Lord. But let's see what Saul does. And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, therefore I said, The Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. You know, he starts making excuses. He even blames Samuel and by proxy blames God that he was forced to commit this sin. And there we see the pride that begins to overwhelm Saul. The refusal to repent and confess his sins. And at this point, God removes his favor from Saul. Now, I won't go through the rest of the tragedy that is all of Saul's life, but if you'll turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 31, we will get to the end of it. Of course, you know that his pride and dependency on popularity um, led him into turning against his most loyal people, led him to be defeated by the enemy, and then ultimately this bad end. He even got to the point that he was consulting with a witch for guidance rather than the Lord. Chapter 31, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Geboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchizedek, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul unto his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword, and thrust it through me, through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword, and he fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men that same day together. 
And when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley, and they that were on the other side of the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel fled, and Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So here we find the tragic end of a man who had sought popularity, who had been a very charismatic person, who had sought the approval of the people his whole life, jealously. And we find him in chapter 31, wounded, surrounded by the enemy, his son slain in battle before him, and ultimately he commits suicide rather than be tortured for the enemy. Not only that, but when he falls, his army abandons the city so completely that the Philistines are able to move in and occupy them. Unfortunately, you see this played out in, uh, on the world stage today. Uh, look at how many actors and accomplished people who have lived their lives based on the approval of people are now in desperate straits. I know I think of Robin Williams as one. You know, if anybody watched any of Robbie, Robin Williams, you would think he was the happiest guy in the world. But his whole life was devoted seemingly toward the approval of people, and he battled with depression. And ultimately, he sorrowfully took his own life. We see actors that have been in many, many movies, made many millions of dollars, and they're destitute because they're seeking, so they're seeking approval from something that's not going to fulfill them. One last, well, the next uh, scripture I would like you to turn to is Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, we see a brief description of the one who will fulfill that need. This is one of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 53, we'll be looking in verses 2 and 3. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. <clears throat> we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is a brief description of probably the closest we get to a physical description of Jesus in the Bible. He wasn't a foot taller than everybody else. He wasn't the best-looking guy. But he was totally devoted to his Father. And everything that Jesus did... He didn't do for the approval of man, but for the approval of his Father. This is who we are to pattern our lives after. This is who gave his life for you so you could be reconciled with a holy God. Our sanctification process, this is the whole end result, is to try to be like Jesus. 
to let the Holy Spirit work in you, to listen to that voice of the Holy Spirit, to read and study your word so that you might pattern your life, not after Saul seeking the things of this world and the approval of man, but after Christ. When you look at your leaders that are up for election, when you look at the heroes that you make, look at their character, not their charisma, when you're looking for someone to follow. The simple truth is that popularity, like wealth, is a neutral force. It can be a good tool. For example, Tim Tebow, Sadie Robinson, many others have used the platform that their popularity has given them to turn the glory to God. Even us on mission trips, when we go to these third world countries or these Soviet countries like in Cuba, uh, we'll often find that we're given a platform just because we're Americans. People will stop and listen to us because we're Americans. It's very, it is, it can be a useful tool. Unfortunately, like wealth, if you make it an idol, as Israel says, it's a terrible God. Tony Evans, and you've heard me say this before, but I love this definition of an idol. Tony Evans says, any unauthorized person, place, thing, or thought that you look to as your source can be an idol. So that can be anything that becomes the subject of your ultimate focus. So Jesus himself was popular with certain crowds, but that wasn't his ultimate focus. That needs to be what we look at in our leaders and in ourselves. Always be sure to point the glory to God and focus on godly character and integrity in ourselves and our leaders over charisma and popularity. That's really all I have for this morning. That's what the Lord laid on my heart because I, I see a world that's 